This podcast is not intended to be an investigative report, and all opinions stated herein are opinions strictly from the hosts and are not affiliated with any law enforcement entity. This is a true crime podcast and may contain information that may be disturbing to some listeners. Audience discretion is advised. Welcome to Vintage Homicide, a true crime podcast being presented to you by two forensic scientists with a passion for the vintage lifestyle. We are your hosts, Ms. Ruby Wild and Ms. Mayday. We will bring you historic murders with special insight into the era and the forensics involved to look back at what crime solving may have been like. This podcast is benefiting the 501c3 Bombshell Betty's Calendar for Charity, which is a nonprofit whose mission is to raise support and awareness for veterans' charities through community involvement, photography, and pinups. So, what does Will Smith leave at crime scenes? Ooh, I don't know. What does Will Smith leave at crime scenes? Fresh prints. Oh. <laughs> Prince, like Prince. Oh my gosh. Okay, so I'm thinking this episode's about trace evidence. It is. It is. This is a different type of episode. We're going to cover the scientist instead of a single murder. And that is because this is one of the most important scientists. And I say one of because there's a lot in forensic science. Um, So forensic science is based on the low card exchange principle which is such an integral part. And we would be remiss not to include this man towards the beginning of our podcast journey. And that's why here we are. We're going to cover multiple homicides that involve this principle, which is the low card exchange principle. And just so you know, like always remember low card exchange principle. It is when I say it's a foundation, I mean, it is literally a foundation of forensic science. And that's why we're covering him specifically. So let's start a little bit about this man who is the French Sherlock Holmes. Right. So his name is Dr. Edmund Locard. Um, And as you said, he is a pioneer in forensic science. So his career really starts with him attending medical school in Lyon, France, and his interests basically start to branch out into science, but specifically science as it relates to legal matters, which is kind of what forensic science is, right? Mm -hmm. So he begins his early professional career in essentially what is forensic science by assisting Alexandre Lacassonne. And uh, Lacassonne was a criminalist and a professor. And uh, in his connections with Lacassonne, he starts uh, partnering with an anthropologist named Alphonse Bertillon. And uh, we know Bertillon as basically the person who creates this system of identifying criminals based on their body measurements. And this is a anthropometric system, um, and it becomes known as signaletics or Bertillonage. And he's also going to come up a lot in the future, FYI. Like, I could, once right. again, Miss Mayday has no clue what's coming up, but I can tell you, <laughs> he's coming up. Yes. So Bertillon is also very pivotal because uh, what we end up specifically knowing as the system of fingerprints, it comes from this early system of Bertillonage or this anthropometric system. And so he identifies individuals basically by measurements of their head and body. 
It's like the shape of their ear, their eyebrow, their mouth, and also individualizing uh, markings such as tattoos and scars. And these are all kind of filed onto these cards. And so... um, And the cards are of people that were arrested for felonies, correct? Right. It was basically a means um, to essentially determine whether or not there was recidivism. So they would file a criminal who was known with this card that had all of their body measurements. Um, I'm going to record scratch on that one. Um, For those that may not know, recidivism. Oh, what recidivism is? It's this concept that criminals tend to commit additional crimes. So... Like recommit crimes. Yeah, they'll recommit the same type of crimes or their crimes will escalate through a natural progression of lower types of crimes um, that will essentially result into more major crimes being committed. So recidivism is essentially um, the formation of databases. And so this principle of recidivism creates these databases. So what Bertillon is doing is essentially filing a catalog of known criminals because essentially they may become suspects in additional crimes in the future, which now we have a means of recognizing them because we have this like info card of their statistics, basically their measurements and what they look like and their physical characteristics characteristics, as well as maybe some personality characteristics. And I would like everybody to picture if you were to go to a library and you have to, okay, wait, am I totally, okay, I'm going to be aging myself. (laughs) The Dewey Decimal System, is that what we're talking about here? (laughs) (laughs) I just had a moment that I realized that the library has other means to look this stuff up. Yeah, a computer. (laughs) (laughs) Again, I completed college before the internet was a major thing. So you go to the library and you pull out, like you look up and you figure out what the Dewey Decimal System is and you pull out your little card tray thing and you search for all your little cards and you find your card and you have to like transcribe and then you go to like your shelf to figure out your thing. That's kind of what this card system is, is they store it all and then you're like, oh, I need a guy that's like blah, 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 measurements and physical characteristics. And then you go into that section and you're like in your little Rolodex. (laughs) (laughs) Again, a Rolodex. Oh my God, what is wrong with me? Okay. It's okay. I'm sure that we have listeners that understand what you're saying right now. Just because not all of us has ever had to use the It's okay. It's okay. Okay. So between Um, Dewey Decimal System and Rolodex, you may understand what this card system is and that the fact that it's not easily accessible by multiple agencies because they didn't have such thing as Xerox or the Ditto machine. Yeah, I did it. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, I mean, we're talking about 1910, right? Like this is you know, this is a long time ago. So yeah, why is this all important, right? So that's that's the study of essentially fingerprints. And that's an aspect of forensic science. And this is what Locard is studying under, right? And so he's studying under Bertillon at this time. And so he's kind of a neophyte in the forensic science world. And uh, he also 
learns from Bertillon this systematic use of photography to document crime scenes and evidence. So one of the most important contributions to forensic science was Bertillon's systematic use of basically uh, this method that he used to photograph crime scenes where he mounted a camera on a tripod. Imagine that. Mm. And, and he documented and surveyed the scene before it was disturbed by investigators. Right. And oh my gosh, do we, okay. Right. A Very of- critical. So I'm going to add a couple, because I'm just going to keep interjecting here. Cause this is, okay. this is my jam. This is a forensic science episode. This is Yeah, this is a super nerdy episode here. It really is. It's a forensic science heavy episode. So if you wanted to know about it and our experiences, and here you go. But Jack the Ripper. Okay. Mm. The reason that we have so many, like so much information that he's so important and that we have all the images of his victims is because of something like this called forensic photography. Yeah. And can I tell you still to this day, we will not process a crime scene without forensic photography it is not done we don't do it we have photography before we get there like before we see anything before anything's disturbed and then it continues throughout our examination to document what we see and how we see it so that way it's able to be presented in court so forensic photography is one of the more important disciplines that is so underrated Yeah, yeah. It's usually just glossed over as a part of the um, crime scene investigation. However, like it's extremely important to have had this system of photographing the scene prior to being disturbed, right? And prior to things moving and then documenting as the evidence collection is occurring. And Miss Mayday just saw me get so excited. We do have an upcoming episode about how Forensic photography does come into play with specific photographs that are needed for impression evidence. Right. And I just, I really don't want to underplay ever. Like forensic scientists are scientists. We are. We are trained in the hard sciences. We do chemical tests and everything like that. But forensics photography is so integral to what we do that what we do could not be done without it. Right. So, like, just always picture those two going hand in hand. Yes. Because that's also, like, you guys in your current true crime escapades and your knowledge and everything like that that you see online. Without forensic photography, you would have none of that. Right, right. So, uh, sorry, back to... That's okay. So, back to Bertillon. (laughs) And... um, just kind I of nerded out. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. It's absolutely fine. That's the whole point of this. These fun facts about the history of forensic science and how we got to where we are today and how we continuously make improvements, right? It takes people like these scientists, like Locard and Bertillon to continue to always improve, right? And us. Right. Yes. <laughs> us too. Which we do in our little facet and world of forensic science and our little niche. So, But Bertillon also developed something that was called at the time metric photography, which is essentially the use of measured grids or scales to document the dimensions of a particular space and the objects in it, including the evidence. So all of this, all of these very rudimentary parts of crime scene documentation 
are coming from essentially Bertillon and Lyon, France, um, with Locard studying under these two individuals, Lacassant and Bertillon. Locard uh, basically starts to create his own opportunities. And this is essentially in 1910, the Lyon Police Department basically gives Locard the opportunity to create the first crime investigation laboratory uh, where he could analyze evidence. And he does this in an attic. <laughs> so there's this yep. at attic space that he is essentially given to do his experiments and analyze evidence uh, for the Lyon Police Department. Hang on. Before 1910, in 1907, what did this man accomplish? In 1907. Pop quiz, hop shot. I know. I'm trying to remember. Uh, oh, he passes the bar, right? The bar uh -huh. exam. So, so he's not just a forensic scientist. Yeah. He's also a medical doctor, right? Because that's the whole reason why uh -huh. he went to Lyon to go to medical school, where then uh -huh. he meets these other individuals who are working in forensic science. And then because he's using science with law, he decides that he's going to get a law degree and he yeah. passes the bar exam. So he's a scientist, he's a lawyer, and then in 1910 is where we get to his attic forensic space. Yes. Don't and you dare leapfrog a law degree. Sorry, I, I just, <laughs> again, there's a lot to talk about with Picard. He's so amazing, like a heart crush, dude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So basically over his lifetime, because like there's just a ton of stuff and I'm not going to touch on like all of the things, but like over his lifetime, he wrote so many publications and the most famous was his seven volumed series, uh, which in English is the Treaty of Criminalistics, which essentially is like the handbook, the first known yeah. like handbook of forensic science. Well, I'm going to, I'm sorry. No, the washing away of wrongs. Oh, yes. But that was mostly with death investigations. It is true, but... This is like specifically regarding like trace evidence examination and the analysis of crime scenes. Okay. Okay. So, okay. But they do go hand in hand, these, okay. two, these two publications, right? So Lacard basically takes Bertillon's work which was the study of fingerprints, essentially. And he does more research into that, that aspect of forensic science. And he believes that there's 12 points of comparison that can be found between two fingerprints. And that would be enough for positive identification. So this is essentially how our modern fingerprints works today is essentially these like 12 points. And there's other scientists also involved in the creation of this system. Oh, we'll get into them. Yeah, but we're not going to cover them now. No. But specifically, Locard was one of those who started doing considerable research into the science known as dactylography. And um, he essentially pushed to have this adopted as a preferred means of identification over Bertillon's method of anthropometry. Um, and this is only because he determined that it was more discriminating. Let's get into what is the low card exchange principle. Right. So low card, according to him, uh, he defines this, this theory as the fact that it is possible for a criminal act 
especially considering the intensity of crimes, right? That it's impossible to leave without leaving a trace, essentially. So what that means is that when an individual commits a crime, they have to and will always leave a trace of themselves at the scene while also simultaneously taking something from the scene when they leave. Therefore, those traces are those items of physical evidence that we can find and therefore analyze to link those things together, link the individual who committed a crime to the crime scene and vice versa, and as well as link the suspect to the victim, victim to the suspect, and both of them to the scene. So this in modern forensic science is essentially the study of trace evidence. And we literally do this to this day. Like, in fact, two days from now, I have a search coming up. This is exactly what I'm doing is I'm going to try and connect my suspect to my victim by trace evidence. Right. Like we're looking for physical traces, right? Yeah. That connect those things and whether they're present or not, that is what we're trying to find. And this is literally like, I'm not going in any further, but I'm saying I will yeah. be doing this in two days. This exact thing. We have a case. We have a thing. I'm going to try and connect the two. Yep. This is Locard's exchange principle. And so it happened in, what is this? 1907 or mm-hmm. 1910? Yeah. Still doing it to this day. Yep. So over a hundred years later, it's cool. But this is the basis of forensic science, which is why we felt the need to bring this up so early in our podcast. And like Miss Mayday said, we're going to continue to nerd out on this episode. So if you <laughs> don't want a nerdy episode, this is not the one for you, but this is our passion. This is our basis. This is our foundation. This is our jam. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to continue to say, as you know, Miss Mayday and I do appreciate the vintage lifestyle, the pinup lifestyle, things like that. And our first case of the low card um, exchange principle is going to so embody this. Uh, so I'm going to jump right into it. Okay. <laughs> All right. So here's a very specific murder case in which Locard himself was involved, not just his principal, himself. In 1912, a woman was found murdered in her parents' home in Lyon, France, by strangulation. I totally interjected this. I really like, because when it comes to science, history, all that other fun stuff, Lyon, France. You want me to... Talk, just talk about fun facts about Leon. Jump in. <laughs> okay. Dude. So there's a lot of things that are interesting about Leon. Like today, most people will know Leon probably as the uh, gastronomical epicenter of France. But um, mm-hmm. in Lacard's day, Leon, France is essentially where the cinematic camera was invented. By and the Lumiere brothers. So, <laughs> wait, first off, Beauty and the Beast. Oh, yes. Yeah. The c- Candelabra, right? His name is Lumiere. It is. But keep going. 
Okay. So uh, the, the Lumiere family um, is essentially really well-known and based in photography. And the father, Antoine Lumiere, had a photographic business. And his two sons, Augusta and Louis, who were born obviously in Lyon, France, worked with their father closely in this business. And one day, Antoine um, saw an example of Edison's peep show uh, kinetoscope in Paris. So this was like the early kind of camera, if you will, that had moving pictures. So it was it was Edison's invention called the kinetoscope, and that was being on display in Paris. And so he encouraged his sons to devise an apparatus that would basically take and project moving pictures. Because if you remember what a kinetoscope is, it's kind of like one of those, um, what do you call them, Corey? Those viewfinders. Like, viewfinders. Like a, yeah. Yeah. And so you essentially just, can I just say, I <laughs> hang on, I'm going to interject. Okay. We're on zoom uh-huh. and seeing Miss Mayday <laughs> mimic holding up to her eyes and pushing with her index finger, the advanced <laughs> feature to get that spiralized picture going. was just hilarious, but it did totally tell me what, what she wanted. is. But when she's asking, I don't have omnipotent like features. It's just her miming it. And it was hilarious. (laughs) Well, I don't remember what those things are called. I remember seeing them as a child, but basically that's what a kinetoscope was. And that's what Edison invented was like this moving diorama of like images, still Mm -hmm. images. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then Antoine was inspired by this and was like, let's make our own camera that would essentially project moving pictures. He saw this and was like, let's do it better. And they did. Within a few months, they produced the first successful prototype of something that they called the cinemograph or something like that. And it was not only a camera, but a printer and a projector as well. Mm. Wait, printer? mm Mm-hmm. Like you Wait. could print the photographed image. Yeah, it was, it was I crazy. I knew about the rest of it. I didn't know that they invented the printer. Then. Well, like the camera printer, like it was specifically to print photos. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know. I, I, and I know a lot of this stuff. I, I mean, I guess print quote unquote, it's like develop, it developed yeah. photo, photographs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So it was this awesome device um, and it was patented in 1895. Um, And so it becomes basically that with Edison's kinetoscope becomes the basis of how we have the industry of motion pictures. And I love that. And so this is, I probably should have included this before we jump into our murder case. But so this is Lyon, France. We have cinema. It's great. And Lyon also has like great history involved with silk production. Yes. And yes. do you have any more to add about the silk production other than yeah. it existed? <laughs> so I did look into this because okay. I've been to Lyon and it does sit... Same. Yeah, it's beautiful, but we do you- such similar. <laughs> <laughs> of course we do. <laughs> um, so I don't know if you remember all of those. I don't know if you did like a walking tour of like the architecture, but do you remember all of those very, very closed buildings with lots of like small passageways, yeah. linked buildings to buildings? Yeah. Um, so 
their architecture structure of um, that essentially paired with the fact that Lyon was is basically at the confluence of two rivers, right? The Rhone and the Saone rivers, mm-hmm. right? And their and its proximity to both northern and southern France because it's kind of mm-hmm. right in the middle. It's basically the perfect place to start to start the Silk Road. So into Europe. So as essentially fine silks are coming into France from Italy and Asia, its very first stop was Lyon. And it was basically because it was a natural conduit for trade um, based on its, you know, geography being on those two rivers. And at that time, essentially, silk production was starting to really take root in Lyon. And that started even way before the Silk Road and the importing of silk into Europe, which was about 1540s-ish. So we're talking a long time ago. Yeah. But even before then, during the Renaissance, essentially, Lyon held these grand expositions and rich merchants from all over would come to Lyon. And one of those merchants was an Italian named Turchetti, who basically opened a silk workshop in Quarus area of Lyon. And uh, he basically brought in all of these like disadvantaged girls and women from Lyon. And he taught them the traditional process of Italian silk winding and spinning. So those buildings that I referred to earlier in the Quarus area of Lyon and imagine those buildings being full of women, basically winding and spinning silk. Okay, wait, but uh, back in the day, and I, I might even expand upon this in a future episode, weren't there like silk paths? How do I describe this? Like where they would have silk go from like ocean to buildings? Yes. Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is what the Silk Road okay. is. Is It's literally as raw ingredients like silkworms, right? Because that's how silk is made. So crazy. From, from, I know, it's an animal product and we'll get more into that too a little bit later <laughs> in this episode. Um, so as the the raw materials are coming in, right, from, from Italy or Asia, because this is where at that time yeah. silk was being farmed essentially from silkworms, brought into France, it would essentially come off the rivers, Right. And go up into these neighborhoods of the Quarus where these workshops were. Right. But they would be like through specific passages. Right. Yeah. Because they didn't want people to rob them. Right. Right. Yeah. And that is why if anyone has been to Lyon, those like very narrow passages, they were essentially hidden most people didn't know that they existed and it was essentially leading from these workshops to the water and back and forth so that the materials to make silk fabrics could be made. And um, like I said, this, I, I feel like this is coming up in a future episode, but I, anywho, that's why I'm bringing it up now. Cause I'm like, wait a second here. I remember yes. the silk passages. Yes. And so if you go to Lyon, that's one of the major like touristy things to do is to do these walking tours through the Quarus where you can see all of these crazy buildings and their they're like winding passages that are hidden 
you know, specifically for this booming fabric industry that was starting and the silk silk road essentially. So, so it, but it starts, it literally starts kind of from the Renaissance and then it becomes known. So all of these women start picking up this trade and this industry grows and it becomes like essentially the capital in France for, for making silk. And then obviously silk is associated with the aristocracy, right? And so silk was expensive to buy and it was a status symbol. So world, you know, the world leaders were obtaining their silk and this fabric from Lyon. And at the time, this brings us to, you know, 1540, um, King Francois I basically gave Lyon the monopoly on raw silk imports. And he wanted to centralize their most prized possession, which was the silk trade, and made this the essentially epicenter of the Silk Road. And then let's get into the 18th century, which is Lyon, yeah. you know, where we are with Locard and Lyon you know, currently. So in the 18th century, it also once again becomes the, the pillar of Lyon's economy. And this is because mechanized jacquard looms were introduced. And so you had all of the silk factories that were already present in the Quarus, and now they're given a mechanized loom. So now they in, needed more workers. And so the city's output of silk fabric basically just grew. And uh, all over the world, Lyon now is like the place to obtain silk fabrics. So it's just remarkable that this city essentially becomes the epicenter for yeah. silk. And it's, again, just due to the fact that silk is a fabric that the wealthy and the the monarchy wants. And so the monarchy gives Lyon the ability to become this, you know, epicenter for luxurious silks that are provided now all over the world. And I find it so funny because the only silk item that I have to this day came from my sister as a gift from China. Oh yeah. Like I have one item. And I'm like, it is the best thing in the world. And I caress myself while wearing it because silk is amazing. And yeah, that's all I have. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. But it did not come from Lyon. And I did travel through Lyon and I did not buy myself anything silk. It's fine. I'm not. No, there's always, there's always next time. It's fine. It's fine. So. Like I said, we segued so far from our true crime. I'm going to go ahead and restart. Okay, so now we're back to 1912. Yes. Okay. In 1912, a woman was found murdered in her parents' home in Lyon, France by strangulation. And the victim was Marie Latelle. And she was a woman engaged to a bank clerk named Emile Gurbin. Goubon? Yeah. Goubin? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, upon examination by Edmund Lacard, he saw that she had scratches on her neck from where it appeared nails had been dug in. He was able to narrow down the time of death to around midnight, and the scene itself appeared intact with no signs of break in and nothing stolen. So, Marie herself 
the victim, was no notorious for being a flirt around town, and she was very popular. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, she was just a fun gal. It is. I mean, it's fine. Um, so Emil was definitely not okay with her behavior because he was a jealous man. So this personality, as well as the people close to her, um, are the first suspects. So police question Emil about his whereabouts at the time of the murder. His statement was that he had been drinking and playing cards with his friend, uh, friends, plural, from the time before the murder until they all retired at 1 a.m. The friends confirmed his alibi and it made it appear airtight. Police then needed to go in a different direction, and this is where Locard came into play. There's a motto for those of us in forensics that we live by, and that is the Locard Exchange Principle. Every contact leaves a trace. We seriously go by this on our daily lives. Every contact leaves a trace. Literally, I'm going to say that for the third time. Every single contact your body makes with anything else, be it another human or an object, will always leave a trace, putting it at that. (laughs) This being a fact that Locard was not accepting of everything being at face value, regardless of having an airtight alibi, he wanted evidence, which is us. He performed fingernail scrapings on Emil because, remember, Marie had scratches on her neck. So a fingernail scraping. Like, let's walk, a, let's walk people through. I know it sounds really basic, but it's kind of not. Yeah, it's basically a standard part of the body investigation. So when a coroner arrives or a coroner technician arrives on scene, they, before they even move the body out of the location, they will do a fingernail scraping. And it's a, it's a process where they, they clip the nails, they swab or scrape with a wooden applicator underneath the nail. And that is essentially something like a toothpick that they kind of run underneath the underside of the nail to kind of remove any debris or physical evidence that may be underneath the uh, victim's fingernails. Um, and then, yeah, suspects too. Yes. And they'll do this for suspects if they know you know, who the suspect is and they have a suspect currently in custody, they'll do this separately for the suspect as well. So all of this is bindled um, into a paper bindle and collected as physical evidence. And so Locard did this apparently to Emil. So he had collected these fingernail scrapings from Emil. Yeah. And I have done this for suspects as well as witnesses, as well as victims. Any of those things, just because you never know. And especially in this case where they saw the the scratches on her neck. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, Uh, presumably, right, those scratches on her neck are from somebody having scratched her, mm -hmm. right? And so if you scratch somebody with your nails, because of low cards exchange principle, they're Mm -hmm. theoretically you will have that the physical evidence of that contact underneath your nails always right so during microscopic examination of these fingernail scrapings he saw what appeared to be skin and pink dust 
These days, we're talking before DNA, which is the entire reason that we have this entire podcast is to let everybody know that forensic science does always go beyond DNA. We have other means to determine the victims and the suspects of crimes. So way before DNA, this is a portion of evidence that everybody was like, huh? So... The pink dust, right? Correct. So the pink dust needed some further examination because it was located under the fingers. So Locard was able to isolate the chemical makeup of this pink material. So how do we think he was able to do that in this era? Uh, He determined that it was composed of rice starch, bismuth, magnesium stearate, zinc oxide, and a reddish iron pigment pigment. Uh, which is essentially the color called Venetian red. And essentially what that is, is makeup. And the reason why this is so interesting is because at this time in 1912, you would have to go to a chemist in order to get makeup made, or you would have to make makeup yourself. And uh, makeup was then a sort of like bespoke thing that you had that was specific to you because you wanted it to be a specific color. So this was more than likely this pink substance that was under the nails was more likely um, to be Marie's Rouge. So Okay, wait, before we even get to that, the reason is... Like me being a redhead, I would have a different rouge than, say, Miss Mayday, who would have a different rouge than, say, somebody else who's a blonde with a pinkish undertone would have a different rouge. Right. So just keep that in mind when she starts talking about formulas, the formulas. And this is specifically for our male listeners that don't wear makeup. True. Um, I and that's the thing. Yeah, it seems so self-explanatory, but you're right. I mean, if you don't wear makeup, you're not really understanding. There are many colors of red, many shades of red, and everybody's red is different. Exactly. So we have female listeners that do not wear makeup. We have male listeners that do not wear wear makeup. We have non-binary listeners that may or may not wear makeup. So we are going to go into the nitty-gritty details of makeup and how they help us forensically. Right. So in this particular case, this is pivotal to this case because you have this evidence of this pink substance, which turns out to be Marie's Rouge that she used that was specifically formulated for her, for her specific shade of red that she used on her specific complexion of her skin. And um, it was basically a shade of Venetian red. And now I need to talk about basically makeup during the Edwardian period. So Uh Edwardian makeup, this is makeup that was done um, between 1900 and 1910-ish in the 10s. So anything through to about 1920. Makeup that at the time, women really wanted like a pale look. And they also needed to look as if they weren't wearing makeup. So makeup as a, as a thing, as, as a cosmetic thing to change and alter your appearance really wasn't accepted for women of normal upstanding stature. So really wearing makeup was only meant for women in the theater 
or prostitutes. Um, sex workers. Right. Yes. Sex workers. Um, <laughs> They've earned their money. Yes. So normal women, um, normal quote unquote, whatever that is, mm-hmm. just it, you, you none know. of us know. Right. So we, women at the time were expected to want to enhance their, their visage, but without obviously looking like they were wearing makeup. And so they did this by creating, and it was very like quiet. You didn't want people to know that you were wearing makeup. So you had to create your own cosmetics or you would have to go to like a a chemist who is specifically making your formulas. And so it became this thing that essentially became known as cosmetic counters. So in 1909, one of like the first cosmetic counters is created by a man named Gordon Selfridge in Oxford street in London. And essentially women could now finally openly experiment with cosmetics before having to buy them. But up until then, right, you had to like quietly make your own or quietly go to the chemist and have them make your cosmetics for you. But now you could go and like um, try it on before you bought them. Ah, a try before you buy. Yes. Um, At these cosmetic counters. And the main component... Wait, uh, and that happened when? 1908? 1909. Okay. And so in, in the US, like we were also starting to develop basically a makeup industry as well. So this is around this time, which is known as like Edwardian makeup, you start to see the creation of um, some really well-known brands like Cody. Do you remember this old brand, C-O-T-Y? Mm-mm. Yeah. Um, it Wait, was. can I interject? Mm-hmm. Anybody who may know my real name, whatever. My nickname for two years, I went through my entire junior high being known as Cody, Cody, K-O-D-I. My entire seventh and eighth grade, I made everybody address me as Cody. Right. Which, that is not my real name. Which is not Ruby Wilde's name. It's not. But we also know her as Cody. But this <laughs> so is... The second you say Cody, I'm like, that's not my real name. But I yeah. identify. Oh, yeah. So I wasn't calling you. I was actually referring to the company... Uh, that was created in 1904, C-O-T-Y. I don't. I think they still sell products today, but I don't know if they're very big anymore. There's also Max Factor in 1909 is created. L'Oreal is created in 1909. And Elizabeth Arden is created in 1910. So essentially, this kind of spurs the creation of cosmetics as an industry. And it's because... People are starting to make formulas for makeup and do this kind of in the public sphere with these cosmetic counters now. And the main component of any Edwardian ladies bag was rouge. And rouge, we all know as the color for like red, a shade of red, but it came in like a pot of varying size. So you can have a little one or a big one and it... It was meant to be applied to your cheeks, your forehead, and you'd use it to stain your lips. And so this was essentially 
makeup at the time. It was a single pot of something that was created and formulated as a shade of red for you um, that you would put in multiple places on your face to make, give you a youthful kind of rosy sheen. But it was, again, the point of it was to not be obviously wearing makeup. It was just meant to kind of enhance your natural beauty and give you this like rosy cheeked appearance. And so this is really to like, to picture this, think of the Gibson girl. Um, The Gibson girl is the quintessential Edwardian makeup and hair and appearance of a woman at this time in 1912. And another kind of fun fact, because again, I like totally went on the deep end with the makeup and how this, how this relates to look hard and what he saw underneath the microscope, there's lots of formulas, right? And so these are all made from natural ingredients at the time. And so for example, Maybelline in 1910 introduced their first cake mascara, which they call, yeah, they called it cake mascara. They also, oh, by the way, she's quoting. I'm quoting air quotes, quote, air quotes, cake, cake okay. as in, in air okay. quotes. And it was also called mascara. And um, it's interesting because fun fact, the company was founded by a man named Tom Lyle Williams, but he was inspired by his sister, Mabel, because Mabel made her oh. own she made her own eye and lash makeup from Vaseline and ash. So mascara was basically at that time concocted like this with Vaseline and ash. And then when they founded Maybelline, they started making it from a type of soap, which is sodium stearate. And if you remember... Some of the ingredients, the things that Locard saw in this pink substance underneath Emile's nails, he saw magnesium stearate, right? So these are just these uh, precursors, their ingredients uh, to makeup. So that's how he could identify it as a cosmetic because he started to see these components, which are these things that you would make as makeup. And I looked into a book called Henley's 20th Century Formulas. I'm into this and already. It, I, I'm into this. And like, there's this whole recipe book for everything known under the sun, including cosmetics, but like glues, everything, cements. Like this book is so fascinating to me. There's a section of it for cosmetics where you can make your own cold cream, your own manicure nail polishes, your own like pomades. And one of those things is how to make rouge. And so I was looking at it and one of the formulas for rouge, what was something called a rouge palette and it was nine parts carmine. And I'll go into what these things are. Okay. 50 parts, French chalk, 12 parts, almond oil, and something called tragacanth mucilage. And it, uh, And it says, add enough tragacanth mucilage to make the mass adhere and spread the whole evenly on the porcelain palette. And as I feel the need to run to Google. Yes. So um, let's start with the weird one. Okay, wait. First off, say the name again. And are we including this in the show notes? 
Uh, we can. I can definitely put in. Uh, so it's called Henley's 20th Century Formulas, Recipes, and Processes. Let's show notes. If I, will, wants I, to know. I will definitely dump it into the show notes. Okay. Um, and it was published, I think, in 1916. Okay. Um, so a little after, you know, um, Marie whole craze. However, you know, this is essentially how she was making makeup or she was getting makeup made for her, um, which is what Locard ends up discovering is underneath Emil's fingernails, right? So, and he wink, does wink, nudge, nudge, right? So he does this because he's identified microscopically these components, and so he starts to look into these components and realizes that it is rouge because they come from recipes like this. So, for example, carmine or carmine is the thing that makes it red. And going back to insects like silk. Carmine is also called cochineal and it's called that is the reason why it's called cochineal is it's named for the insect in which it is extracted from. So (laughs) if you could only see my face right now, everybody. uh... Yes. So that color carmine is also known as uh, crimson lake, carmine lake, natural red four. So start looking at your foods anything with natural red four or something called E120 is carmine. And carmine is extracted from an insect that essentially produces carminic acid because it is what deters predators from eating them. And And those are red ants, right? They're like red ants and you see them, they look like red ants. They're actually not in the ant family. I think they're in a different family of like porphyrophora species. Because um, uh, you know I'm, a, I'm allergic to red ants. We're part of the Hymenoptera. Hymen- yeah, yeah. It's not in Hymenoptera because I'm also okay. allergic to things right? in Hymenoptera. <laughs> um, but it's definitely not Hymenoptera. It's I'm in... Like, um, no. I like yeah. my makeup and I'm allergic to Hymenoptera. Yeah, which is why you could probably have lipstick on without getting, you know, allergic reaction to it. This is, it comes from a scale. They call them scale insects. And this insect is usually found on, um, on cactus. So uh, basically this color comes from carbonic acid, which is what this insect puts off to keep predators from eating it. And these produce, it's, it makes like a red color essentially. And so the way that you prepare carmine is you take the powdered scale insect body and you boil it in ammonia or sodium carbonate solution. And then you separate the insoluble matter and uh, the extract is treated with aluminum essentially. And it precipitates out the red solid. And that red solid, that precipitate is called carmine lake or crimson lake. And the way that you can test the purity of the color is basically by doing a spectroscopy, essentially. I love Uh, it when you talk science to me. (laughs) So uh, essentially reflectance spectroscopy is probably what Locard, after seeing all these components underneath the microscope, is probably what he used to essentially detect the specific color. Because remember, he detects it as Venetian red and not 
necessarily like this carmine red, which is natural red four or E120. Um, so again, this color comes from insects, uh, comes from their body and their eggs, just FYI. It's fun. Mm-hmm. And it's a dye. And that colorant is commonly used in food and cosmetics today. So again, this old timey recipe, nine parts carmine, now 50 parts French chalk. French chalk is essentially magnesium silicate. So it's talc. Okay. And talc, this specific French chalk can be sold as like a stick, like a, a, like a chalk, right? Okay. What you use to write on a whiteboard okay. or it's sold as a powder and uh, you would use the powder. So you would mix the carmine with the powder. And interesting fun fact about French chalk, it's also used in industry for a lubricant for moving wooden parts. So if you think about drawers and cupboard doors, for example, people back in the you know 1900s, they would uh, put this French chalk, like dust it into the wooden parts to keep them from squeaking or, or even floorboards. It, they would dust it into the floorboards to keep it from squeaking. And then also women would commonly use French chalk for lifting grease stains from clothing. I get the grease stains from clothing. And if you work in construction, yeah, like, is like, chalk like, ideal? I, you like, you take the powder and you would just basically puff the powder into the runners, the drawer okay. runners to keep them lubricated so that they move in and out of cupboard drawers well. Okay. Right. And also just like cupboard doors in general to keep them from squeaking or your floorboards from squeaking. Okay. You would, so you would have French chalk at home. So remember, if these women were making their own makeup because you, the whole goal of this was to look like you weren't wearing makeup, you had to secretly make yourself makeup. Gotcha. Right. Okay. So you would have this stuff at home or it wouldn't look weird that you were buying it. Right. Putting it back into perspective. All right. All right. Yeah. So 12 parts almond oil, you would commonly have almond oil at home too, because almond oil, you would rub on wood to keep that glossy sheen, right? Okay. Or you would use it for food or cooking, baking. Okay. And then this thing called tragacanth mucilage, which I was like, I don't know what this is. So basically it's more like contemporarily known as gum tragacanth, which is a viscous, odorless, tasteless, water-soluble mixture that comes from the sap of trees. Okay. So, so that's like for consistency, right? Yes. It's just to make it into a paste. Okay. Okay. So the, the, basically the gum comes out of the plants and it's basically twisted into ribbons or flakes, which then get powdered. Um, okay. and then you mix the powder with water and it becomes a gel. So then it becomes a paste in which doesn't have any flavor or color that you add the French chalk to and the carmine and the almond oil. And now you put this into your glass or porcelain okay. container. I can picture this now. Yes. And so this is what rouge is. This is one example of a okay. recipe for rouge. So this is essentially what Locart has identified based on looking at the okay. stuff under the okay. microscope and running some tests. He's like, I know what this is. These, all of these things are here because this is rouge. And it's very specific 
percentages. And if you're thinking about it, you now have like a salve or a cake. Uh, I don't wear makeup often. You might be able to tell, but that you like rub on specific areas. And that's what happened to be on her neck. And so he went around to local chemists and one chemist was able to confirm that he made Marie's makeup with the exact ingredients, the exact percentages that were under Emile's fingernails. So he has a direct connection between Marie and Emile. Police went to question Emile again, and he crumbled. <laughs> he was able to explain his alibi with his friends, insisting that when he was with them, he got his friends super drunk turned his friend's clock ahead to make the men believe that the time that they passed out was later than what they did. So he turned it forward to make them all believe that they passed out past 1 a.m. when in reality it was before. And it was believed that his motive was straight jealousy. And according to one website, it was claimed that he went to trial with the confession and he was sentenced to death. So, so all trace, based on trace evidence was the trace uh, evidence. Yeah, it was All the right. thing that led them to their to their suspect. Completely. All right. Now that we have established that Locard's exchange principle actually works, it came into play again the same year in 1912 in April. This time it was in America, specifically Lynn, Massachusetts. This time the victim was an elderly man of 71 named George Marsh. He was a millionaire that had retired from the head of the Goodwill Soap Company. He was discovered in an embankment adjacent to Salt Flats, and he had been shot four times with a 32 in the heart, liver, abdomen, and head. The victim still had his watch and wallet on him, thus ruling out robbery as the main motive. Near to where his body was located was a pearl gray overcoat button. And when it came to this, I was wondering, like, how do you specifically know that it is an overcoat button? Right. And so I saw your your question there in, in the notes. And I, I was starting to think about that too. So like, how would the uh, Lynn police like know that this was specifically an overcoat button, right? as opposed to like a shirt button or pants button or whatever. Yeah, it's a button. Right? And so I had to like look this up in terms of like men's fashion, which is fantastic. Cause again, that's the other aspect of why we do this show is we talk about vintage clothing, vintage lifestyle, you know, and things that had to do, um, you know, with vintage clothes. And um, so I looked this up and essentially it's a fact that contrasting buttons in either mother of pearl or embossed metal like brass or silver or pewter, they're actually one of the technical features that defines what a blazer is. So the term blazer, which is an overcoat, mm -hmm. um, is meant to capture the assertiveness and boldness of the garment. And therefore, these buttons, they they're generally like bigger and flashier, right? So sometimes um, if you think back on like a traditional navy blue blazer, uh, it may have a metal button, which is embossed maybe with like anchors or some other emblem, yeah. um, right? Because it's meant to be bold. And so okay. when they saw these pearl gray buttons, 
they immediately knew that it had to be a button for an overcoat because again, they it's a quintessential part of what an overcoat should have, which is a button that is not the same color as the fabric, but it has to be strongly contrasting. So it was just commonly known that suit jackets, sports coats, blazers would have such a like flashy type button. And so when they saw this button, they knew they were dealing with a men's, a men's jacket. And it says pearl gray. And I'm assuming, I'm assuming that's mother of pearl. Um, mm. because, and, and like interesting facts about mother of pearl is they're punched from the inside lining of shells, right? And that's what gives them that really, um, unique color. Okay. Right. And a long like time ago, abalone ones, right? Yes, okay. precisely. And originally they were produced on a grand scale in Iowa using freshwater mollusks from the Mississippi river. And today, though, most of that global production comes from Asia. But the when, like, there's a trick to, like, determining whether or not you really have a genuine mother of pearl button as opposed to, like, a fake plastic reproduction of a mother of pearl button is by placing the button on your lips or your cheek. Because if it's authentic mother of pearl, it should feel cooler, Okay. Can I just say, I keep giggling at how you say button, button, button. Is that not the normal way somebody pronounces button? Not us. That came from a hick town. Yo, it's button. Button. Okay. <laughs> so this is with their decedent. And so police started looking at the family for possible suspects, as most of us true crime fans are aware that the murderers are usually those that are close to the victim. The members of this family were actually independently wealthy, and it was known widely that George was planning to leave his entire estate to charity. So this ruled out inheritance as the motive, or so they thought. George had last been seen the day before he was found, and the medical examiner had declared that he had died previously that evening. And we have, like, we're just going to establish our forensic time of death in this episode. Yeah, and I think we did discuss this in maybe one of the previous episodes uh, just a little bit, but uh, we're going to go into this concept of how medical examiners or coroners determine time of death. And uh, the term algor mortis was essentially first used by somebody named Bennett Dowler in 1849. And he's calling algor mortis this, he's terming this term in 1849, However, previous to that, in 1839, John Davy is the actual medical physician who establishes what algor mortis is. Um, and in general, I'll just define this. Algor comes from the Latin for coldness and mortis meaning death. And so this word algor mortis, it means coldness of death. And it's essentially the second stage of death which is characterized by a change in body temperature post-mortem. So it is essentially that change in temperature until it reaches the ambient temperature. And so this is generally a steady decline because generally the ambient temperature is cooler than your 
body temperature, your core body temperature when while living. However, sometimes it could go the other way. For example, if the ambient temperature is above the body temperature. So think of places like the desert, right? And so then the change in temperature will be positive as the relatively cooler body acclimates to the warmer environment. So it can go both ways, but generally speaking, it is a decrease in most cases. And lots of factors can influence that uh, rate at which the body temperature is changing. And John Davy was the scientist who ex- who essentially established and did a study to establish what that rate is. So there's like a set interval essentially for how the temperature changes. And he did this by opening up like cadavers and he uh, would take their liver temperature as well as the temperature of their heart. So he would stick a thermometer inside the heart and under the liver and would take temperature readings and was marking what that temperature was at different intervals and how it was changing. Um, So he essentially is the physician who in the study of pathology determines that we can kind of reliably uh, estimate time of death based on this known interval at which the body's temperature uh, is decreasing to match the ambient temperature. And obviously, like there's many other factors to what may possibly cause any sort of temperature fluctuations. And still, even to this day, we still do this. Yeah. The coroner text will come out and take a liver, liver temperature. And we do. But like when people think that you can narrow it down to, I have literally heard podcasts say minutes, hours. No, you can't. I'm (laughs) yes. It is an estimate for sure. It's definitely an estimate. You can't. Yeah. So it's not a perfect science in that sense. It is just because, again, there's lots of other environmental factors. Uh, There's also the way that drugs and, um, you know, other chemicals in your body could potentially alter and change it. It's also your own personal, like for me, I run at 97.6. Right, right. And what your actual core body temperature starts at, right. So all of these factors influence that, which is why it is only to be used as an estimate, um, not a precise like determination of time of death. And John Davey is a pretty interesting person when I was looking into this. And uh, Ruby Wilde actually has a very interesting fun fact of her own that she just found was like super fascinating. So I'm going to give it to her. I'm going to let her tell y'all about it. And I know this sounds ridiculous, but the fact that we had a scientist that do this, and I'm not 100% sure why, either Charles Darwin asked him to or was excited that he did this, but it has to do with eggs. And what he did is he submerged an egg in water and then vacuum pressured out all of the like extra oxygen. And what he was able to determine is that the egg, and I'm assuming we're talking about chicken egg, um, that it had about 80,000 pores that it accepted oxygen into and produced CO2 to expel. And once again, I have absolutely no reason why this was done, why it's important, anything along those lines. But John Davy is the person that actually was the one to determine that eggs breathe. Yep. <laughs> 
Yeah. And that it passes through the eggshell, right? So I don't know why. Breathe that... in oxygen through the pores and exhale carbon dioxide through the pores. It killed me and it made me super excited to know this. I don't know why it's the scientist in me. I don't know why he did it. I don't know why it's important. I don't really care. I just, I wonder if this was because like, this is 1863, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if they were trying to determine if they were mammals. I Maybe. And like I said, I do know that at some point it did involve Charles Darwin, but either way, I'm just happy to know that eggs breathe. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't know why he needed to know whether or not eggs breathe, but definitely did the experiments. And John Davey, he was the person, he was the guy. He was our guy. Yeah. And he was also our guy for time of death. And without him, we possibly would have been super delayed in knowing time of death. But either way, we were able to determine that George had died earlier that evening. Uh, a light blue car had been seen in the area of George's house the day of the murder. And while canvassing, police found a boarding house where the owner uh, named a man, uh, William, or I just gave it away. But either way, Willis A. Dow he was a renter who was seen using binoculars to spy on George's house. And another landlady in the area said that she rented a room to a man who had left his gray overcoat behind and all of the buttons on the overcoat had been removed. So police had a possible connection and they sent the coat and the button to Lowell Textile School in Northern Massachusetts to examine. And Professor Edward H. Baker and Louis A. Olney uh, compared the items under a microscope. And these two men, uh, Miss Mayday, I made her look into them. Yeah, it was kind of hard because um, they're not like well-known forensic scientists or anything like that. It Essentially, uh, they become pivotal in this case because of that button that was left behind at the crime scene, right? So remember where... George Marsh's body is, they also find this pearl gray overcoat button. And then the uh, circumstantial evidence and like from the interviews, right, they end up finding this gray overcoat that has no buttons. Um, And so both of these things, they end up going to the Lowell Textile School. And the reason why they go there is because uh, Lynn Police Department did not have an actual forensic facility or a crime lab um, of their own. So What they did have, which was interesting, was that they were essentially one step ahead of the rest of the nation when it came to medical examiner's offices because they had a medical examiner's office established as early as 1877, which is just for time frame of reference, is four decades before New York would have a medical examiner's office. Uh, So they were kind of ahead of crime fighting initiatives there with having a medical examiner's office. However, they didn't have a crime laboratory, but they knew that they were dealing with potentially trace evidence specifically surrounding this button and this coat. So they wanted to see if this button and this coat were related, right? Whether they were from the same source. Um, So they took this button and this coat and they gave it to the Lowell Textile School, which is located in Northern Massachusetts. And there is where it becomes basically this Professor Baker and Olney's case. 
they compare these items underneath the microscope and they determine that there was a match in the weave and texture of the fabric because around the button, there was still like thread and cloth that was right. still attached to it. Like fibers and yeah. fibers. Yes, precisely. And those fibers were able to be visibly matched to that jacket. So that is all I really know about Baker and Olney is just because they got it kind of were at the right place at the right time and had this case thrusted in their direction because of the lack of having a actual crime laboratory in Lynn. Which is, it's just so fascinating. Like we all know, uh, the whole reason that we're doing this is because crime labs are usually in their infancy. And the fact that they were willing to utilize people that had nothing to do with a crime lab, they were just textiles and uh, professors and they knew to utilize them to be able to match this stuff. It's just fascinating that law enforcement was willing to go to that level. Yeah. They were definitely utilizing what they knew from like, the principles, right? The low card exchange principle. And they knew that they needed to find a subject matter expert. And so they uh, basically utilized their resources and knew that they had this textile school where they could basically use microscopy, you know, the science to determine whether or not there was a link between this button from the crime scene to the overcoat. It doesn't help them find their their potential suspect, but it was basically just to see if they could establish this link between the crime scene and this particular overcoat. Which is half the battle. Right. And they did this and they were able to do this. And then where does the case go? So then it faces conjecture that knowing that the button had been removed at the crime scene and that the suspect removed all buttons from the overcoat to prevent any sort of potential matching The button tying the scene to the coat, police still needed to identify the owner of the coat. So a local fisherman had found a Colt 32 pistol from the water around 50 yards from the murder site. The serial number matching the firearm led to Stockton, California. And keep in mind, we are in Massachusetts. Yeah, Massachusetts. Okay, so we're all the way in California now. And the owner of the firearm was a 30-year-old motorcycle deal dealer, William A. Dorr. The mayor offered a $500 reward to the capture of George's killer. That's mayor of Massachusetts. Um, and of Lynn. Of Lynn. Thank Massachusetts. you. <laughs> <laughs> what? There's no mayor of specifically Massachusetts? <laughs> right. I, so, so I'm you sorry put... I disregarded the need to specify. So there we go. Yeah. <laughs> so the mayor offered money. His family also agreed to contribute to the reward, the victim's family. A few days after George's murder, police found documents between George and his niece, Orpha. George was in charge of the trust inherited by Orpha from her adoptive father, James, which was George's brother. Her monthly stipend was $87.55, and she recently was writing to state that she was entitled to more, and being a 38-year-old woman, she could manage her own money. And we've talked about this before, where women were somehow like, oh, you can't manage your own money, and we're like, yeah. Yeah. We've we've talked about this before, so I'm just going to leave it there. Yeah. 
Moving on. <laughs> so uh, she's displeased that all she gets is this stipend and she's like, I can handle my own finances. Uh-huh. So she wanted to meet with her uncle on the matter. And she stated that Georgia's great nephew, William, would serve as her proxy out in Massachusetts. William Dorr was Orpha's nephew. He had been a little hard up on money and decided his aunt would be an ideal target to obtain money as he knew she was an heiress to George's fortune or her father's fortune. Instead of using the family connection into the door, he instead seduced her. The nephew. Uh-huh. Okay. Biological nephew. Okay. So Orpha was feeling like a spinster, still being single at the age of 39, and was joyful to have a new suitor, regardless of their bloodlines. Okay. So while William was working his way into her good graces, yeah, we're we're both like a little grossed out. Like I just like <laughs> I'm I'm glossing over this, you know, like the whole first cousins thing or whatever. First cousins are legal in California, as far as I know. I'm just I don't want to. This is her nephew, though. It's yep, like, mm. yep. Okay. I'm hoping because she was adopted, I'm really hoping that this nephew is not a full-blown biological tie. Yeah, I, I hope that that's what this is. Because, I mean, she, if she is um, adopted, potentially mm. this nephew is not biologically related to her, right? Yeah. yeah, it's not. So this is hopefully the explanation behind I'm, this. I'm going with that. And that's like where my brain goes. So, yeah. Okay, there, go on. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> um. Uh, she changed her will to name him as her only heir. William saw the only way to have more money through Orpha was to have his great uncle. That was the reason he was being sent as Orpha's proxy to the talks about his finance, her finances. So like he basically knew Orpha was his lover. And the only way for her to get more money was for him to go convince his great uncle, Orpha's uncle, her father's brother, to grant her more money out of her inheritance rather right. than just a stipend. Right. So police now had Amanda question Willis Dow or William um, as the gun registered to William Dorr. So he's Willis Dow, William Dorr. And there's notes about money from a relative of George with the promise of William being sent to be talked to George. So again, we're talking about like William was sent to talk to George about money. And, yeah. and so the police, yeah. The and the police now has found letters that support this and the gun is registered to William door. Correct. And which, so like everything's kind of closing in on this net. Yes. So at the time they were able to locate a vehicle parked in Boston that had been registered to a William Dow. So now we have Willis Dow, William Dorr, William Dow. He's mm -hmm. not very original with his names, but whatever. The dealer of this vehicle had stated that the buyer told him that he was there from California, Stockton, and that in the car there was a 22 rifle, which did not match the caliber that George had been murdered with. And police now believed that they had enough to arrest William Dorr, his actual name, from Stockton, California. Orpha knew that William was being suspected of the murder and she did not want to be connected to the crime because she never sent him to 
like actually murder him, she turned over his journal or further writing. Like it was either letters or a journal. And it included a note written to her from Williams stating that George had been killed, but not to say anything until she had been formally told. So if that's not a red flag, yeah, dude's been killed, but pretend you know nothing until somebody's actually told you. Yeah. So that's what she had. And she had it in writing. And so she also released the diary that William had wrote detailing his stalking of his great uncle. William took steps to conceal his identity since the murder by cutting and dyeing his hair, as well as wearing a large pair of glasses. Police arrested William, and he was indicted by the grand jury and extradited to Massachusetts to stand trial. During the trial, William admitted to shooting George, but stated it was in self-defense. He claimed that when George spoke poorly of Orpha after he discovered that William was his great-nephew— So he's basically saying that George found out that William and Orpha had a relationship and he knew that the two were related, that George had a problem with this and started attacking him. So he killed him in self-defense. Okay. So when William attempted to leave the vehicle angry that George was upset, George attacked him and William shot him in order to get away. He then panicked, wrapped George in a blanket and placed a hat on his head. He then drove around for 30 minutes with George in the vehicle, acting like a living human being, before finally dumping George where he was found. As for the false names he was using, his excuse was that he was hiding from two men from Stockton who he believed had followed him east. I don't know who these two men were, but he was hiding from them, and that's why he had false names. Okay. So the jury deliberated for a whole of two hours. Yeah. (laughs) They weren't buying, they weren't buying his story. Not at all. Basically. Yeah. So William was found guilty of first degree murder and sentenced to death. He died in the electric chair in Charleston State Prison in March of 1914. As for the family, Orpha did receive her inheritance with the rest of the family, and she received a portion of this inheritance. The uh, uh, The chief of police of Stockton, Frank E. Breyers, also received $1,500, $500 from the mayor of Lynn, Massachusetts, as well as $100 or $1,000 from the Morsh family. So for the captain, for for George's murder like capture of george's murder Uh uh-huh yeah okay so wow that was very generous a little bit a little bit i mean still to this day we don't even get stuff like that but that right there is just our succinct low card directly involved exchange principle like we're talking a button with fibers and possible tearing evidence and as well as we're talking about makeup composition and those are just two cases where the low card exchange principle comes into play where everything just culminates into a conviction yeah based on the physical evidence yeah Yeah. the detection and identification of it yeah exactly and so this is pretty much just a primer on the history of the possibilities of forensic evidence and so we're going to come up with so many more cases where low card's going to come into play on all of the different facets of every contact leaves a trace. 
And I do have to say, I thank my New York Times archive paper subscription for getting so much information about this case because I wouldn't have gotten it otherwise. Like this case, it's not highly publicized or anything. And it's shocking to me because it involves rich people. (laughs) But you were able to find it in the New York Times and the archives. A lot of them, a lot of them. So thank you, journalism, because I am not a journalist. And so this helps me. Yeah, that's awesome. So in closing, I just want to say I might have to start wearing makeup more often just so that way I can help solve my own murder. Wow, Ruby, I I don't, I would hate to have to do that. So, let's, uh, but yes, you're right. Like I, I get the sentiment behind that, that, uh, that even your makeup could help solve your case. However, um, that, that's a little bit dark. I love flooring you with some of these. I know I'm I'm like speechless. Wow. Um, Okay. But uh, again, if you do, if you are interested in wearing more makeup, you can definitely refer to the recipe book and make your own rouge. Heck yes. Uh, We're going to post that in the show notes, right? Yeah. So I'll drop that into the Buzzsprout show notes so that for the viewers out there, if you're interested, you can make your own recipes with insect byproducts. Yeah. <laughs> and common and common household things that are commonly used for like adhesives and to stop floorboards from squeaking. Just random, random things. Love it. And can't wait to talk to you guys next time. Thanks for visiting. Yep. We'll see you next time. Homicide is produced by J.H. Cabral. Additional editing and theme music produced by Matt Beck. A special thanks to Bonnie Navarro Photography and Bombshell Betty's Calendar. Please visit bombshellbettyscalendars.com for more information. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Vintage Homicide Podcast. Please subscribe wherever you prefer to download your podcasts and join us next time for more tantalizing tales of murder and mystery. 